Welcome to Video Store. I am Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2003 film The Station Agent. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks, Sam. Good morning. Baird, I really uh, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I This is a movie that I've heard of, and I'm trying to remember why I heard of it. I, and I, I think... The closest that I can think is that when later Tom McCarthy movies came out, people would reference this because I, when I think about what my life was like in 2003, I'm sure I wasn't aware of this movie when it came out, but it's definitely a title that I knew and that, that I knew that it was a, it was a movie that um, people that I respect thought was a really, uh, really good uh, worthwhile movie. What's your history with this film? Yeah, um, yeah. So it came out in the fall of two thousand three. Um, thanks to my uh, Netflix account history, I know that I watched it in July of two thousand four. Uh, <laughs> so I know that that was my first viewing experience. I don't remember what turned me on to it. Um, certainly, in those days, I was watching uh, what used to be Siskel and Ebert. I don't know what it was at that point. It kept changing, but some something must have evidently sparked an interest in me, uh, and uh, that's when I picked up on it. Um, and this is the the first film uh, from Tom McCarthy. I have to admit, the only other I've heard of some of the others, and, and heard some of them are good. Um, the only other Tom McCarthy movie I've seen is Spotlight, which won Best Picture. Um, and it's it's interesting thinking about um, this movie and Spotlight made by the same person. And I, I was I was racking my brain to try, and I could come up with a couple things, but like like what is there anything between those two movies that um, any sort of thread between those those two movies have you seen other tom mccarthy movies i'm trying to think remind remind me of what else he's done sam uh the visitor in 2007 oh, yeah the, yeah, the, vis- the visitor is excellent i really that's another film i've actually thought about watching yes the visitor is very good uh and then he made a movie called win win which is about high school wrestling yes yes and uh and then the, <laughs> yes yeah. yeah and then the cobbler in 2014 and that one i don't know i don't i haven't even heard yeah. that one right so i mean i think the, the the big thing that jumps out to me and we'll definitely talk more about this today between spotlight and this is how amazing and how amazing the casting is uh and the and then just the the ability to set up lots of uh lots of really good interesting performances um uh and and i definitely want to want to dig dig in more about that. So I'll say that the two things that jumped out to me um, and why I, that lead to kind of why I really enjoyed this movie. Um, although there's a, a lot to say about it. Um, and the first one's going to sound odd, but I like, I really enjoyed this movie in the way that I really enjoy podcasts, <laughs> which sounds strange, but let me explain. Uh, I've done a lot of um, presentations uh, about podcasting to different faculty groups and things like this. And the thing that I always tell people is no matter what the podcast is about, the thing that's going to make the podcast successful long-term is do you ultimately enjoy the relationship between the people who are on this, who are on the podcast? Like, like um, do you enjoy listening to them have a conversation almost regardless of what they're talking about? And that was, as I was thinking about this movie this morning and I was kind of writing up questions, I realized like, I, it's like, I almost just want to see another, I want to watch another episode. I want to go back and spend time with these people again. Like, I don't want to, I mean, I, I would rewatch the movie, but I would also watch these characters spending more time together. And I realized, Oh, that's like, a, that's how I think about a podcast. I'm like, I want to go back and spend time with those people some more. Um, so, so it actually, you know, it, it, like 
it is the it's the kind of, and and I think this probably speaks to um my the way I interact with people, my anxieties about interacting with people that it's like because I can sit and listen to people have conversations that I find that very comforting. Um, so so I I loved the scenes when whether you know regardless of which mix of characters it was, it's like oh they're going to sit down and talk for a while, and I feel like I could settle in and relax and and sort of take that in. So I really enjoyed the relationships in this movie. I know, I know what you mean about about listening to podcasts for that for that reason. Um, an analogy I would draw is when the first time we went to England uh, in 1993, there was a World Chess Championship going on, and I just loved watching the coverage because I had no interest in chess uh, as such, but I loved listening to the to the commentators talking about chess. So I think it does. Yes. It was really interesting. <laughs> Um, and of course, famously, I'm going to date myself, but famously, when Monday Night Football started in the early 70s, the Howard Cosell, Don Meredith, um, uh, Frank Gifford uh, in a relationship was more interesting in some ways than the game. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and that leads to another thing I loved about it. And I'm going to say a word that's not accurate and not fair. And 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 I so I'm even before I say it, I'm saying I'm wrong in saying this, um, but I'm trying to find the words to talk about this, which is one of the things that I love in my favorite stories, my favorite novels are things that are kind of plotless. And what I mean by plotless is it's like, if you, if I was to summarize this movie to someone, it's basically, there are these people who kind of start, I mean, they get to know each other. They, and they, they're maybe some of them are defensive about getting about sort of interacting, but they, they get to know each other and they, they're, they're sort of, you build these relationships. Now you can put in the specifics of some of these things, but it's like that describes half the movies that I've seen in, in some ways, you know, without getting into some of those, the, the deep specifics. And I think what I mean is not plotless, um, but it's like the stakes are not uh, life and death stakes, but they are like these deeply human stakes about like, how are people going to relate and how are people going to interact and how are people going to, potentially find connection and happiness in life. Um, but they're, but they're not sort of end of the world stakes. There's not a mystery to be solved. And even the things that are mysterious, the things where we don't necessarily know, cause this, this movie actually, I think, uh, when I think about some of the characters, I have all these questions about them, but the movie's not particularly interested in answering most of those questions. Um, so, so I, I actually, I, I like the fact that the stakes are not, that there's not these heightened moments where I'm deeply concerned about someone's survival in the moment with the one exception at the end with the train. And even that they just sort of almost magically like resolve. And it's like, okay, it turns out that was okay. <laughs> well, you know, so, I mean, it, that's, an, that's an interesting point, Sam, because, you know, sometimes people talk, plots revolve around conflict, right? And so, you know, I was watching the film and I was thinking, okay, when we talk about this, you know, and, and we talk about plot, you know, you might ask me, what's the conflict in this film? You know, what, it, what, what you know, because obviously if you compare it with what we watched last week with, with the lobster, the conflict's very clear. Yeah, that's a ticking number, clock. A number of different conflicts around, right? And they have to be resolved. But what's interesting to me about this film, and, and this is, I think, difficult to pull off, is how do you make a character-driven film interesting? Because because if it's character driven, that you know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a plot, but it means that the characters in some respects are more important or just as important as the plot. And that's one thing I would say is is distinctive about the McCarthy films to kind of get back to that question. Um, the fact that McCarthy himself is an actor 
Um, that doesn't always mean that the actor is going to be a director's an actor's director, but I think that I think he puts character above everything else. So to the degree that there is a conflict in this film, it exists at two levels, and it's both connected to character. It's the conflicts within the characters, and it's the conflicts between the characters. And as you're saying, none of those conflicts is um, world shattering, um, but they drive they drive people forward in in a way that is interesting to watch. And I think that that's one of the it's one of the can be the glories and also the dangers of smaller films. Um, to be character driven, you have to be sure that you've got characters people are interested in, and you got to be sure you have actors who can who can pull it off. And I think that's part of what makes this film work so well is it's not only are they interesting characters, but they're very well cast characters. Um, yeah. People you really enjoy spending, as you said, spending time with. So maybe let's talk about some of the some of the characters. As I was writing questions, I just sort of realized, like, well, I kind of just want to go through the. There's sort of five main, three main characters, and then there's two that are um, secondary, and then there's probably tertiary. Then there's tertiary characters beyond that. But thinking about um, about these both these characters and these actors because one of the things as i was going through this is this movie almost deserves a nobel prize for casting in terms of seeing seeing where things are going to go so i did a little bit of research on this because i was interested in how many people are in this movie that i know and that actually are highly decorated actors but i was interested like where were they at in their careers when this movie came out mm -hmm. so uh so here's an interesting thing so if we look at this if we think about and I realize this is completely arbitrary, but if we take the the two major screen acting awards, the Oscars and the Emmys, let's say, okay, like the 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 uh, the actors in this movie have a combined twenty uh, not excuse me twenty Emmy nominations and nine wins and five Oscar nominations. But going into this movie, they had a combined one Emmy nomination and one win. So whoever cast this, like they just set the template for what the next. 17 years was going to be like it was it's amazing you know to go through this so like uh i mean i don't think peter dinklage had done a lot before this this is his second film yeah yeah i mean and he goes on to obviously uh i mean he's a four-time emmy winner in in game of thrones but it's in all kinds of other things as well and is a really great actor bobby cannavale went as a two-time emmy winner Patricia Clarkson, she's the only one who had an award going into this. Yeah. Um, so she had won an Emmy, but has won a subsequent one and has an Oscar nom. Um, Michelle Williams has an Emmy win and four Oscar nominations. And John Slattery, who shows up, you know, two thirds the way through the film. And I'm, yeah. I'm always happy to see him, although this is this character. I'm not particularly happy to see, <laughs> but it's like I love John Slattery and he's got four uh, four Emmy nominations as well. So it's just it's just interesting how they hit the casting department hit these folks as they were about to really explode uh, in terms of, you know, probably the, the national consciousness in terms of uh, their acting. Yeah. And I think the state, I mean, the, the station agent was a big help. It got um, you know, uniformly positive reviews. So, uh, so it's hard to know what's cause and effect, right? Um, right. Did that, uh, did that launch them or were they already on that arc and McCarthy just recognized that and, and, and grabbed it? So. Right. But it is such an interesting moment to see all these people who mm -hmm. you, you then, you know, from, from, from other things. Um, so, you know, maybe starting with, uh, thinking about the, the character of Finn, um, played by Peter Dinklage, um, what are your thoughts about him? What, what things sort of jump out to you about this performance, about this character? Well, you know, I, I think what's tricky about the character and to a certain degree tricky about the performance is, is how you address the fact that he is a dwarf. 
Um, you know, Dinklage throughout his career has been very um, careful about not accepting certain roles that kind of stereotype him. But at the same time, the film can't pretend that he isn't a dwarf. So what, to me, one of the things that's really interesting about what happens with him, and a lot of the critics comment on this as well, is that he gives us a, a fully developed character that it, it doesn't matter that, that he's a dwarf, and yet it does. I mean, it's, it's like that simultaneous thing where, you know, he says something about one point about, you know, I'm really actually a very boring person. Um, and, and one of the critics that I was reading, it was Elvis Mitchell in the New York Times, said that what's great about the performance is that he is both interesting and boring at the same time. That he doesn't have to be interesting just because he's four feet five. Um, it's okay for him to be boring. At the same time, he is interesting because he's four feet five because of the conflicts within himself and with the world that he has to deal with. So I think Dinklage does a great job of, of making it clear that it's important that this character is a dwarf, but at the same time, it's not. He's interesting both ways, if, if I can put it like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's. I also love the fact that he's not trying to fit into this world. Like, like when he goes to uh, when he goes to the the train station, you know, it's that it's uh, it's the Joe character who keeps reaching out to him and is and and it's like Joe's trying to fit into this other or trying to make sense of the world around him maybe and is trying to fit this person into his world where Finn at least initially is is perfectly okay not not like tr not trying to put himself into this world not talking about how he does or doesn't fit into this world I mean, this is a great movie about both loneliness and wanting to be alone um i think in in some pretty interesting ways and, and and i think obviously thinking you want to be alone um, right. but not really and of course one of the one of the ironies of the title and, and his character is that when he describes what a station agent used to do uh, he is the opposite of a station agent. He doesn't behave like a station agent whatsoever. Right, right. Uh, and I, I think one of the 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 interesting things is I'm thinking about connections uh, to to other films that we've watched. Um, and I don't know how how intentional this was to put right next to the lobster, but um, in the lobster, when they're at the hotel, there is this thing about what is the what is my defining characteristic or my defining trait, right? And it would be so obvious if Peter Dinklage was in the lobster that it would be, I am a dwarf, right? <laughs> like that, like, although for him, he has a defining characteristic that he's chosen, mm -hmm. which is that he's a, a train watcher, yeah. you know, and there's, and, and it's sort of, there's this tension between what are the, what are the things that you choose to, to be the things that you put out about yourself and what are the things that are thrust upon you? And that's happens to multiple characters in here, not just, um, not just to him. But, but, I, but I also love the understated way in which he's a train watcher. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he's not like a train nerd. He doesn't talk about trains all the time. It's, it's, it's interesting. He, he's interested in them, but he doesn't impose it on other people the way a lot of enthusiasts do. Right. There's, there's the great scene at the beginning when they go to watch the film of the guy. And, and he and, uh, and, and his, his friend, they kind of just give each other this look like, Oh, we're watching another one of these uh, train spotters who's filming it, and yeah, and like, and I, I love sort of that that moment. And there's also the, a, a great moment, um, and it's one of these the moments where there's like this moment of social awkwardness when they're, I think it's when they're eating the first meal outside of the the the, the coffee car, mm -hmm. and uh, Joe has been talking to him about train watching. And then he says, so do you people have, have like a club? Oh, and there's this moment where you're just like, Oh, that don't. Mm. And then he's like, no, no, like 
train watchers? Do you have a club? And you realize like, because that, that's a moment where you realize that, that Joe is seeing Finn as the thing he's, the thing he's chosen, not the thing that's been thrust upon him. And this is great. It's a tiny little moment. It's easy to miss, but it's like, that is such a, that's such a great, uh, a great moment. No, that is. And you, and you can, you can see that you can see Dinklage way to beat. Right. And, and you're thinking, Oh no, what did Joe mean? And it turns out, and then, you know, Joe's okay. Yeah. Okay, no. <laughs> um, so I, I know that Patricia Clarkson is one of your favorites. You, you've mentioned her uh, before. Uh, what are your thoughts on the character of Olivia and how she functions in this film? Yeah. And of course we saw Patricia Clarkson way back at uh, in the spring and uh, as the doctor and Lars, Lars and the real girl. Um, and, you know, one of the things I, one of the things I love about Patricia Clarkson, especially in this role is there's this, combination of um of the exterior that she's trying to convey you know this kind of um uh trying to shut herself off a little bit uh you know we we know at one point that joe is wondering why she never kind of engages with him so she's trying to be a little bit like finn in that in that sense but at the same time as we know she's sort of um you know completely vulnerable inside going through the breakup with her husband and continuing to mourn the loss of of her of her son um, so I just, I, I love that combination of her, of, of concern and tenderness. You know, she does little things like you know, a big thing. She leaves the camera for Finn. So she clearly has feelings, but at the same time, in many ways, like Finn, she's struggling with how to open up, how to be vulnerable, uh, about those feelings. And Clarkson just, she really captures that, you know, that, that combination of tenderness and even at, at times rage, uh, the way she's able to kind of span those emotions. Yeah, and we get such a such a strange introduction to her. I, what what I like about about that character is the first time you see her, she is this distracted, dr- twice distracted driver. So you get sort of one picture of her, and then the next time you see her is when she's at the coffee stand and she's cold to Joe, mm-hmm. and you're, and it's just like, oh, I I. I I liked I liked that that those first two hits we got of her were so different, and they end up you end up understanding all of that going forward. But but it's but you're getting these weird little pieces, and and that clearly she like you said she's drawn to to Finn in a particular way that she's not drawn to Joe, and it's you know eventually you see you see the, that trio um, kind of come together in a particular way. Yeah, and and, and then you find out she's an artist, um, and it's not something that. You know, as with everything in this film, Sam, it's not something that's made a big deal of. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, that's what she does. And you get a glimpse of the paintings. I didn't do any research on who actually did the paintings, uh, by the way. But, you know, you get a glimpse of the paintings. You get Joe's response to the paintings. I love that. Um, <laughs> you know, and, so, so that, and, and, and to me, that's, that's how that film works. It's very, in that sense, it's very elliptical. It's like, I'm going to give you this much, and then we, I trust you as the audience to kind of fill in the rest. So for some people, that approach to a film is is a little bit frustrating. Um, it doesn't kind of develop things in the way you'd like them to be developed. But to me, that's because it's developing, it's taking developments in a different direction. Okay, so she's an artist. That's about all we need to know. Because this gets back to what you're saying about defining characteristics. Because, it's, because that's not her defining characteristic. That's something that she does. But this film is interested in her inner emotional life and how she's dealing with that. Mm-hmm. One of the characters that I thought was really was really interesting was um, uh, was Joe, uh, played by uh, Bobby Cannavale, uh, in part because he, he's 
so in some ways so out of place in the story. I mean, he even talks about how he's not from there. Um, right. That, that he's, he's from Manhattan. I think he says, right. Or he's from New York somewhere. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah. And, um, and just his whole personality seems so different than what we see in Finn and what we see in, um, in Olivia. And he's somebody who is so, um, so hungry to want to connect with people. Uh, it, you know, and what's interesting is both on a, on a superficial level of like, he's clearly an extrovert. <laughs> so like, he just wants to talk to whoever, cause, cause whoever comes by, he like, he joins in the soccer game. He does this, like he wants to, but then there's also underneath that he like wants real human connection as well. Like he wants to not just have the, the superficial shoot the breeze while somebody buys coffee, but he like, he keeps wanting to have these people stay and wants to talk and wants to, to, to connect more. And it's one of the things that I found interesting. Um, you know, we all bring ourselves to these movies as well. And, um, one of the things that I, I thought of as I was watching it is I'm somebody who's, uh, very introverted. I have a degree of social anxiety. I get nervous around people that I know, let alone people that I don't know. And I, I have, you know, you sort of have these assumptions about, okay, the people that I don't know, what do they think about me? They probably don't want to talk to me. They, whatever. And then you see this character of Joe, who's like so desperately wants to talk to to Finn, and and you know, and I and I don't, you know, so I probably project some things onto Finn at that moment too, because I'm probably more like him in demeanor of like. I, I don't, I don't actually want to talk. Not even, I don't want to talk to this person, but I don't think this person really wants to talk to me. And I'm afraid of if we do go further, what are we going to talk about? And, you know, so, so I feel like I could project a lot onto Finn, but it made Joe such an interesting character to me because it's the kind of person that I'm sometimes afraid of at first, because it's like, what is the, what's the angle of you needing to talk to me so much? Well, you've also touched on a, pl a plot point that I think I just kind of give to to McCarthy without looking at it too carefully, and that is um, Joe has picked a surprisingly secluded spot uh, to park his truck because <laughs> we know that there is a downtown. I mean, right. uh, so it's like he, he could have been somewhere else if he really wanted to talk to people. So part part of me thinks that even though Joe is extroverted, I also think that um, there's a sense in which uh, he also wants a little bit of a little bit of privacy. Um, you know, he's doing this job for his father, but he's kind of distracted by concern about his father's health. He's spending a lot of time on the phone, at least initially. So it's, it's so you know, it's one of those things where I think, as I said, you just sort of give it to the movie, but it's like, yeah, he probably could have parked somewhere else if he really wanted to see a lot of people yeah. and up a lot of business. Right. And w one of the reviews I read talks about sort of this ebb and flow you see within the characters of like, they they want to reach out to people, but then when somebody connects, they they sort of push back too. And you see that in um in in a lot of these characters. There's a lot of moments. Or there's a couple other things since you brought up the location of the coffee stand. There were there were two other things that uh, one of them is just as a Minnesotan, and I don't know if you feel this way, but like I can never watch a movie like this and not think about the weather and be like. And I was just like, well, isn't that like, hey, what season is this happening in? <laughs> and like, what's gonna what happens when it gets cold? Is that I was thinking is that uh train station waterproof like if it rains like there's just it's a it's a film devoid of weather which is 
actually nice because I think I would be stressed if there was weather as well um, in it. But I feel like I feel like new, where they're at in New Jersey, there is winter too, right? Like that will that oh, will yeah, happen yeah, at some yeah. point. Um, the other thing, and this is just a minor thing, is like I don't understand what anybody does to uh, for money because Joe doesn't seem to make they don't seem to make much of any money at that coffee today and selling you know coffee for a dollar. Finn seems to have just retired. You know, um, yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, there's reference to mail, and I mean, I, I, I don't know if he's getting disability checks. If yeah, it, it's not clear whether you know Henry left him a little bit of money along with the station. I don't know. And again, um, I'm perfectly happy to not have answers to those questions, but they are the things as I was like. Those are, I, I think maybe it's you bring the things that stress you about life into these things. Then you watch a movie and it's like, nobody seems stressed about the weather. Nobody seems stressed about how they're going to make money. And I, and, and I eventually it allows me to relax in it, to realize, Oh, we're not going to have to, we're not going to have stresses around those things, but they're definitely the things I bring to a movie like this. Well, you know, you know, one one thing to think about it, Sam is if if you want to think about a, a movie as a huge extended metaphor, um, and Coleridge said, you know, no metaphor runs on all four legs. In other words, you know, any, any metaphorical construct, any imaginative construct can break down under close analysis. So I've been reading, for example, I had occasion to read this past week to revert to one of our earlier movies, um, folks that really get hung up on plot points in Vertigo um, and really say this part doesn't make sense and that part doesn't make sense. And I don't know what the what the secret is to to a movie that, that you will allow its either inconsistencies or what Henry James called the donay. It's given. We're just gonna. It's almost like a mathematical process. Assume X. And so, I think what happens with the station agent is for the sake of enjoying those characters' lives, we're just not going to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. But. It also makes me think a little bit about when we talked about bringing up baby and how for you certain elements of that society uh overrode the ability to kind of just say this is the crazy world in which i'm going to live for a while so but i so i I, so i think a film like the station agent it has to win you over enough to say okay i really want to see what happens with these characters and i'm not going to worry too much about you know, even how does Patricia Clarkson afford that house? I mean, maybe her husband's paying some kind of uh, paying something, but she doesn't seem to, to she doesn't seem to sell her paintings. She doesn't seem to have any connections outside of the two sort of friends. And yeah. to me, none of that matters because I just find them so interesting to watch as they kind of stumble towards some connection with with with, with each other. Absolutely. No, I, I, I a hundred percent, I a hundred percent agree. Um, let's maybe look at the, the, the two kind of secondary characters that are, um, surrounding this, this trio. Um, so we have the, uh, we have Emily, the, uh, the librarian played by Michelle Williams, um, who this has to be a pretty early role for her. I would think, I mean, I, I don't know, was she, was she a child actor too? It was, it's actually not as early as I thought. I checked on that. Uh, she actually had come off of Dawson's Creek. Okay, um, which is one of those you know big mid '90s uh, dramas that I actually never watched, but it launched a lot of careers. So she was in that, and then she was in a couple of other. She 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 did start as a relatively young you know teenage actress, um, but then right after this is when she when she kind of starts to have her breakthrough, uh, yeah. breakthrough roles. I'll just put in a plug uh, for um, another very quiet character driven movie that she made a few years later with Kelly Reichert called uh, Wendy and Lucy. 
Um, uh, if you don't like slow character driven films, it will drive you crazy. If you like the station agent and you like Michelle Williams, and I would definitely recommend Kelly Reichardt's uh, Wendy and Lucy. Uh, and if you like stories that involve dogs, because uh, it's uh, Wendy, uh, Wendy is her character and Lucy is the dog. So uh, what function do you see the, the Emily character playing in, uh, in this movie? Oh, I, I, I think a couple things are going on with Emily. I, I think one is that she's another person who, after that initial fright, and actually that initial fright when she drops the books because suddenly Finn appears, I think it's very parallel to the moment that you pointed out with Joe asking him, don't you people have clubs? She's not frightened because he's a dwarf. She's frightened because she didn't know there was anybody else in, in the library. Because someone's in the library. And, right. I, and I don't think she was covering. I think that's really what she meant because she never seems to see him as a dwarf. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, there is a, a genuine physical attraction between the two of them, right? I and mean, they get to share a kiss and she's not taken aback by that. And Finn himself is surprised by his own attraction. So mm -hmm. I think she's there both to uh, emphasize again that there are people who are capable of seeing Finn as a human being, not defined by his height. And Finn realizing that despite his effort to cut himself off, you know, we know he's had some kind of romantic uh, involvement in the past. We don't know the nature of it. You know, Joe mm -hmm. quizzes him on his love life. But I think it, confirms or reawakens in Finn this notion that he could actually be attracted to somebody in a romantic kind of sexual sense and that person would potentially reciprocate. Um, and her storyline helps lead to um, one of the scenes that, that as I was reading uh, critics, it's the one scene that people are kind of mixed on, which is um, when we have Finn in the, in the bar alone and it's kind of the like sort of builds up to his kind of break and um, you know, where he stands up on the bar and basically just says, okay, everybody look at me. Right. Like um, which is, which is uh, you know, you talk about how the movie both kind of acknowledges that he's a dwarf, but also doesn't put that front and center, but it's also necessary. Like what is your thoughts on that scene? Yeah. You know, on the one hand, it's, it's kind of predictable. Um, and uh, on the other hand, it comes at a time when, when people in the bar haven't been particularly, uh, they haven't really particularly targeted him. He's kind of been sitting there alone uh, most, most of the evening. But I, I, I think it's necessary because Finn um, has had this inside of him all along. Um, and, and whether it's just a stereotypical expectation or not, he's got to boil over at some point. He, he, uh, his character needs to have a turning point. So in terms of plot, I think he needs it. But in terms of character, um, he's got a lot going on inside him and he's not going to be able to break through to genuine friendship with the others unless he kind of gets, in a sense, gets it out of his system. And of course, it's significant that this is followed immediately by the train scene. Uh, so you have a symbolic death and you have, after the train goes over him, you have the, um, uh, the destruction of the watch. Uh, and, you know, and the watch has kind of been a symbol for his aloofness from life you know he stays he sits apart with the watch and he times the trains and and it, it kind of becomes a a recourse for him to invite to to um uh to avoid entanglement and mm -hmm. so now that's kind of over and over and done with uh so i, I think those the, to me those two things kind of have to go together certainly 
Uh, and then the last, the last of the 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 secondary characters uh, is Cleo. The the I forget how old she is, um, but the the young girl who just sort of pops up along the railroad tracks. And again, we don't get a lot of we don't get a lot of her, and especially a lot of sort of backstory with her. But it's this movie allows you to write your own version of those stories, which aren't hard to write. Like who is this girl who's all by herself, who's hanging out by the railroad tracks, um, who ends up. Uh, both kind of befriending Finn, but also just playing train on the, you know, by herself in the, um, in the, in the train car. Uh, and then this leads to her, you know, wanting Finn to come talk to her class, which creates another one of those moments of like, uh, why do you want him to come? Like, like what about him? Do you want him to come and talk about, which is again, goes back to that tension of, is this because he's unique because he's a dwarf this, you know, or as we find out, like, she wants him to talk about trains because she's interested in trains too. Yeah, she thinks she yeah she thinks trains are cool. So she's you know she's yet one more person who sees Finn mm-hmm. as a, a, another another person. She asks a little bit about his condition, but otherwise that then she's done with that. And what I what I like about it is that it's not necessarily romanticizing children. Oh, you know, children are able to see without prejudice. Well, you get the kid in this in the classroom yeah. that gets taken out of the class because he won't stop focusing on the idea that Finn is a dwarf. So I think it's a it's another one of those kind of genuine relationships, and of course it's another place where Finn has to get past. You know, it's a it's a nice contrast with the bar scene because now he can stand up in front of people and he can actually talk about something that's important to him, which is obviously another barrier that he has to overcome. And I, and I think it's nice that the scene isn't a long one, and it's not necessarily a rousing success because he gets involved in conversations about blimps versus trains but that but that introduces kind of a nice little comical element to it yeah blimps are cool too yeah. um so I, I i think that's that's just one more way of you know kind of peeling away his some of his layers yeah t- two great things about that scene one is it's there's a little bit of a like if you're thinking of what would be like the the uh stereotypical way to do that scene is that kid says something and then he uses this as a moment to teach and he doesn't the teacher takes him out and the other thing i love about it is he's kind of a bad public speaker like it's not like (laughs) he goes there and gives this eloquent talk about trains like he has he's reading from note cards and it's kind (laughs) of awkward and it never gets even when they get to the like playful part about the blimps it's never not awkward and it's just like yeah this is actually what it's like probably for most people when they get up and talk in front of a, you know, a sixth grade class or something. So it was like, like that was this great moment where I was expecting one thing and instead they gave us something that was probably more real. And I really liked that. Um, well, one question. That's, that's what I like about the art that the characters on Sam. It's not, it's not that there's going to be this tremendous transformation. You know I mean? It, it's and it, because that's not the way people are by and large. Um, people change if they change, but they don't know. They don't necessarily change completely. So I think his idea. I mean, he's still going to be Finn, but he's going to be a little more open to people than he has been in the past. Um, do you think there's significance to uh, train watching as the thing that he does? That's a good. That, that's a good question. I. I mean, I. I yeah. I. I don't. I don't know. I think mean, what. What's interesting is that he's spent very little time on trains, and he actually doesn't have a lot of the equipment that people need to to be a train watcher. Um, I. I think. I think it's it's a, it's a hobby, and and did it did it have to be trains? I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I loved about the, the 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 train of this movie is I will reveal some things about myself. I counted this off this morning. 
I sleep 45 steps from a from a uh, railroad track. I regularly uh, walk the right away because I that's how I get to the grocery store. So there is some there was something very nice about these long drawn out scenes of people walking around along railroad tracks because that is a regular part of my everyday life. And uh, and I know I, I am not myself a person who's mesmerized by trains, but I I have people in my life who are. So I know people who will who will do what Finn does, which is like, oh, there's a train coming. Let's drive over and watch the train go by. And and I will say, because I live by these tracks, there is something, especially when my kids were little, like magnetic about, oh, a train. And even though they go by every day, we'll stop and look out the window. I still will and watch the train go by. And there's something, I mean, there's something very uh, American about about trains as mm -hmm. well. You know, and I think that's part of the, the right of way thing is like, this is, there's a piece of American mythology uh, both uh, light and dark manifest destiny kind of thing about the trains as well. So, so I think that that's, um, I think trains are, are, are a deeply, deeply American thing um, in terms of that. Uh, one other question that I, I want to ask, and, and, and I want to ask this in the spirit of, I really, really love this movie as a movie. Um, I'm wondering, and I think we talked about this on an earlier episode, but, but one of the other things that jumped out at me is like, the difference between movies and television because this also felt like if this wanted to this could be the pilot to a maybe not a television show i'd want to watch but it could be like like the the long pilot of we're introducing these characters we're starting to get to know them because i will say when i got to the end and the, and the movie has oddly an almost abrupt ending like they're sitting there talking and then it's over and yep. my initial sense was oh can it just keep going like i just again because i like spending time with these people there was this sense of like can it, can I just get like 20 minutes more of spending time with these people? And I, so I, I just, I, I wrote in my notes, like, what is, what's the difference between movies and television? Like, why is this a better movie than a television show? And I think we've talked a lot about it. I think in part because it's, and this is maybe true in lots of ways. It's like, it's better not knowing all of the little pieces and things like this, but I still at the same time have this desire in the way that some good character driven television is like where it's like i actually would just like to spend i would love 30 more minutes with these people yeah. well you know i mean to use one of those cliche terms uh it, it's a slice of life and so the the director makes a decision about how big a slice does does he or she want to show you because i think you're right i, I think that with the premise of a film like this you could you could turn this into um eastenders uh, or, 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 or any soap opera that just can, it goes on as long as people go on. And so I think that what, you know, so the discipline that the film, uh, creates for you and, you know, why an hour and a half rather than two hours, I, you know, that's, mm -hmm. like I said, that's the decision he makes. Uh, he, uh, and I, I, I most almost always have a movie go, go too short rather than too long. Um, so that's, you know, and that's, and I think it is significant. You're right. It, it ends kind of abruptly, but it ends with, there's, you know, there's kind of, in terms of the structure of the film, there's kind of three different moments when they sit around eating. Um, and and, and it, there's two things that go on in this film a, a lot, eating and, eating and smoking. Um, there's a lot of smoking in this film, it's, it's interesting. But no, I, I, so I, I think that, you know, if, if you wanna say there's kind of a structure, it's kind of a three-part structure with the three meals. Uh, and I mean, I think as a symbol, this gets us back, of course, to uh, Babette's Feast, right? As a, as a symbol of um, kind of community, relationship, um, unity, uh, whatever, all those good things about human communion. You know, a meal is a, is a, great, is a great example. 
And I loved the fact that, I mean, again, I am not saying that I wish this was a television show. I don't actually want more, but I love the fact that if it was like, I kind of know what the beats of the next episode, like, like, it's like, okay, well, like you, they, they, they sort of hint at the fact that this story continues, you know, we're not going to see it, but this story, these people's lives don't end at this moment. And that goes back to sort of the, the plot plotless or stakes um, of of the movie, it's like there is they didn't go through this end of the world moment, and now their lives are dramatically changed because of this. But their lives are evolving, and there's you know, and I think it's significant that it's the three of them there, even though we have you know they're talking about the Emily character, but it's like, but this is this is their relationship. This is these three, and I, I so I really I really actually loved the ending, and I, I mean it's probably it's probably a compliment to the movie that it left me feeling like, oh, can I just have a little bit more? Like, that's great. Like, that that, that shows that I enjoyed um, I enjoyed the uh, the journey that he took us on. Is there anything else you want to talk about in terms of this film? Yeah, all I want to say is I'm, I'm going to do a silly version of Six Degrees of Separation or Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Um, the three main characters, Peter Dink, uh, main actors, Peter Dinklage, Bobby Cannavale, and Patricia Clarkson are all connected through Cindy Lumet, director Sidney Lumet. Um, Bob, Bobby Cannavale was actually married to Jenny Lummett, uh, Sidney Lummett's daughter. Uh, Peter Dinklage's first film was Living in Obivoli, was, um, um, I'm sorry, he was in um, Find Me Guilty, which was directed by Sidney Lummett. Uh, and then Patricia Clarkson, I got to stress that, st- stress that a, a little bit more, but uh, she was in The Untouchables. Uh, that was her first film in 1987 uh, with Sean Connery who made several films with Sidney Lumet, including uh, Family Business in 1989. So that's my my six degrees of separation around Sidney Lumet. Cool. Well, I will point out one other little, I love when like very tiny cameo, it's not cameo, it's just a very small part, um, but uh, Emily's boyfriend, Chris, his best friend, who's I think only in one or two scenes, like, like the guy he's hanging out with oh, is, yeah. is played by Joe Latrulio. Who is uh, part of the the, uh, the sketch comedy group The State from the early '90s? Was in he was a very funny comedian and part of like a, a pretty influential group of young comedians in the early '90s. Um, part of Reno 911. He's on um, uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine now. But it was just like I, I it was one of those moments where I was looking. I'm like, wait a minute, I know who that guy is. Why is he in this tiny? I mean, he's in you know, less than a minute of the movie, but it was just, it was just this great little moment to see him in a, in a role that has almost nothing to do with comedy. Um, so yeah, it was, that, that was just a, an interesting little moment. Well, I'll, I'll add one more then as long as we're doing that, the lawyer that meets with Peter Dinklage to tell him about his inheritance is Richard kind. Uh, and, uh, he is wonderful in, um, the Cone brothers, uh, um, serious man. He plays the brother, uh, Michael Stolberg's brother, and uh, he's just a great character actor. Well, I'll add one more then because uh, Harry Styles, the guy who owns, or excuse me, Henry Styles, the guy who owns the uh, the train store, is played by Paul Benjamin, who is in Do the Right Thing. He's oh, one of the right. he's yeah. one of the the three guys on the corner in Do the Right yeah, Thing. So. Yeah, you're right. I forgot that. Yeah. So lots of connections. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. So what do you have for us next week? Well, you might think I'm going to say Train Spotting by Danny Boyle, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Although that is a film I'd like to go back to. Now I'm gonna so I'm, I'm we're gonna we're gonna do an arc on unusual or interesting relationships and friendships. Okay. So my next one is it's also a genre we haven't delved into before, and that is the vampire film. So uh, we're, I would like to do Let the Right One In, uh, the nice. 2008 Swedish film. 
Oh, fantastic. And I recommend, and people can you know ignore this or not, I, I do recommend subtitles rather than dubbing, but you've got the choice on Amazon. All right. I am very excited. This is not a film that I have seen. It's a film I've heard of, but not particularly familiar with. So I'm going and in maybe, pretty clean. Maybe this goes without saying when you recommend a vampire film, but there will be blood. Uh, <laughs> so so if, if that makes you a little squeamish, uh, I just, you're, you're warned. All right. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for uh, for recommending the station agent. I really, really loved this. Uh, really loved this film, uh, and I really loved this uh, this discussion that we've had. Uh, that is all the time we have for this week. We will be back next week to watch "Let the Right One In" in the video store. <laughs>